All right. I think we're live. Just a few quick notes. I know the timer countdown is all messed up. I clicked the wrong thing. But two notes. There's going to be a slight hum in the background of this. That's because there's a fan about an arm's distance away from me in the microphone because it is really, really hot and stuffy up here. And I'm trying to cool the room off in a fairly quick fashion. And I don't really feel like firing up the air conditioner and freezing. So we'll just, uh, just be cool with a fan. All right. Uh, beyond that and past that, um, I'm really sorry. I wasn't here last week for more chat, but, um, we're here now. And, and this will be good. I appreciate your patience. Thank you so much for everybody who asked after me to see if everything was all right. Yes, everything was fine, just stuff. And, um, yeah, happens sometimes, right? That's life. But we're here tonight. We've got some great questions. This is going to be really, really good. I'm looking forward to it. And let's do it. All right. Just remember... What I've taught you. What the fuck is that? Hey, yo. And, and here we are. Thank you so much for being here, everybody. Hi, I'm John. Uh, it's nice to be back here in your ears and on your screens. If you have no idea what this is, this is the writer's chat for April the, what is we, April the 12th. So thanks for being here. Shall we do the opening? Let's do an opening. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, plotters, cheese enthusiasts, creatives, um, bathtub likers bathtub enjoyers anybody who really really likes desserts anybody who's ever uh, like pondered mysteries of life during those quiet down moments anybody who can appreciate like a really nice breeze on a hot day root beer fans people who collect the trash people who don't leave wet towels on the floor um anybody who knows the proper ratio of oil to vinegar in salad dressing creatives who can appreciate saving files in multiple places, people who can generally make it all the way through bingeable content without skipping too many episodes or fast-forwarding too many slow parts along the way, and most importantly, the comrades. All right, here we are. It's getting good. We've got some 13, 13 questions collected from all different corners of the internet and all different kinds of people covering all different kinds of topics tonight. I'm I'm really excited by this. I think tonight's going to be a really good one, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Twitch. Hi, YouTube. I hope you're doing well. Why isn't that on screen? Now it is. All right. Hello, everybody. Sorry, the, for whatever reason, the chat thing. Why is that going nuts? The The chat thing did not uh, chat the way I thought, so let's just fix that and then move that whole window over, and now we're more organized. Really, really great. Hi, everybody. It's just sort of a 
Now, they see, that's going to be crooked. So we're going to take three seconds and totally irritate the podcast audience while I straighten this thing out. Okay, there we go. Sorry, podcast people. Uh, you have no idea what I just did. I fixed a thing that was going to visually bother me over the course of this whole sh uh, evening. Shall we move on to question one? I don't have any things today other than to tell you that, as per usual, uh, this stream, as with everything else, is powered by Ecamm and Descript, both of which, if you're watching on YouTube, should have, I think, in theory, links in the description. I think I set that up right in advance. If not, uh, let me know, and I'll put them in after the fact. Other than that, no sponsors tonight, no big messages, other than I'm just really excited to be here, and hopefully the screeching children next door don't screech too loudly. But all the same, let's go, uh, let's go hit that first question. Question number one. The links are in the description. Awesome. Love to hear that. Question number one. How do I know what to focus on when I'm building a pitch or writing sales copy? Okay, I get this question a lot, like a lot, a lot. And it's usually coming from a place where a writer is wondering if there's a best thing or a better thing, if there's some kind of hierarchy. Like, do I talk about my character more than I talk about my plot? Do I talk about my plot more than I talk about my world building? Do I talk about the conflict? Do I, do I talk about the bad guy? As, as if they, there's supposed to be a format and a scale to everything that you're supposed to say this, but not say that. And the minute you say the bad thing, oh no, everything's ruined. And it's, it's not like that at all. There isn't a hierarchy that says one thing is better than the other and one thing is worse than the other. What's important when we're building a pitch or we're writing a sales copy is that you've made a decision that's concrete. You, you've nailed it down so that you can say, okay, I'm going to talk about X, whatever X is, in this pitch. Related to X are, let's call them Y and Z. I'm going to talk about them too. I'm not going to talk about A and B and C and D and everything else. Not because they're not important, but just because they're not related to X. Now, you might be sitting there going, yeah, but John, that doesn't answer my question. That doesn't help me know if it's right to talk about X. And maybe I should be talking about B and Q and J the whole time. I can't say that for certain. I don't know. I don't know what those things are. And I also don't know how you're going to write about them. There is no one single formula for any of this stuff. What you're looking for is material, organized story stuff that you can talk about in a way that makes somebody else, somebody who doesn't know those things, interested and makes them want to know more about them. And those things could be anything. You could pitch a story based entirely in the world. It might take a bit more work because maybe you have to think a little harder or find a different way to make maybe a very flat, simple world sound dynamic. You might have to put some brain power into this stuff, but you can do this. It is possible. You just need to pick something and then find its related materials rather than hopscotch around and say, oh, I got to have a sentence about this. And, oh, I got to have a sentence about that. And what do I do about this? And, oh, this and, oh, that. Like we're, we're eagerly picking single spoonfuls out of a salad bar or something. Instead of this hyper frenetic approach, just do one thing at a time. Just organize a few things. Let's talk about this. And here's some related stuff. And maybe that's enough. No, doesn't feel like enough to me, the author. Okay, let's add a second thing in. Can I connect those two things some way, shape, or form? Hopefully, yes. 
but maybe that's enough. Maybe two's enough. Maybe three's enough. I wouldn't do more than three for most pitches and stuff. You only have so much space and so much time for these things. But by and large, you can organize your stuff, whatever that stuff is, in any number of ways. And as long as you are doing the job of provoking interest or provoking excitement or creating some kind of emotional response in your listener or reader, you're doing your job. Now, if you're going to ask me, well, how do I know if the person reading my email is interested because I can't see them? Yes, part of that is you can't. You just, like, we just don't have that ability. You have to kind of trust that they're going to. And you can kind of hedge that bet by before you go send your stuff off into the world, before you press publish on that sales copy, before you send that query, before you pitch whomever, run it by somebody and get their response. Then get a response after that and see if somebody out there is, you know, excited or hype or interested in what you're saying. And then take that as a, as a step forward and take that momentum and then do the thing you're trying to do. It just comes down to making a decision and being organized about it. What a great first question. On we go to the second. Second question. I got frustrated and stopped writing for a while. I'm sorry to hear that. How can I give myself some encouragement as I get back to my manuscript? Okay. Um, I hate to tell you this. It's tough. It's tough to do. But it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's just going to be a little difficult. But it is a fixable, doable thing. And here's how you do it. You can approach this in a couple different ways. I'm going to give you some options. They're not necessarily in order of priority or order of superiority. They're just different options, okay? First option, remember your goal. You wanted to publish. You wanted that book on the shelf available for sale somewhere. The only way that's going to happen, the only way that happens is if you write the thing because you can't, you can't sell an unfinished thing. You can't sell a thing nobody knows you wrote. So step number one, think about your goal, whatever it is. I wanted to get, you know, represented. I wanted to get a book deal. I wanted an advance. I wanted to do this. Um, whatever it is, whatever it is, remember that goal and figure out the steps towards that goal. Now, maybe there's, it feels like there's a billion steps. Maybe they seem like there's a huge, like each step is, is monumental, like taking a walk to the moon. But there's, you know, everything can be made into smaller pieces. Everything. How do we write a book? One sentence at a time. How do we put together a pitch? One decision at a time. How do we decide whether we're going to self-publish or traditionally publish? One decision at a time. Everything can be made smaller and digestible and accomplishable if you're willing to accomplish it so long as you stay focused and moving towards your goal. Now, maybe that idea won't help you. Maybe, maybe you're about to tell me, oh, John, I know. I hear this all the time. I get it. Okay, fine. Let's give you a different one. You're the only one who can write this book. You are the only one who can do it. Other people can certainly attempt it. Other people can certainly write their book with your stuff. But you are the only one out of all the creative humans that exist now, will exist in the future, and could exist in the past. You're the only one who can write your story your way. If that doesn't encourage you to be creative... I'm, I'm not sure what's really going to spark that creativity. You're the only one with your voice, your idea, and your arrangement of words, and your facility and ability to use them. Other people use those words. Other people use them differently. That's not the same thing. You're the only one who can write your story your way. So why not write it? 
You already took time off, so the worst case scenario is you take more time off. That's fair. Okay. But you're still going to be the only person who can produce that stuff. It's still all you. It's going to be you. So this is your thing. And if we go back to tying it together to our goal idea, this was your goal and you said it was important. And if you're the only one who's, you know, who can do it, how is it going to get done otherwise? But let's, let's say that's not enough. Let's say you've heard me say that a bajillion different times. Let's go give you a third thing that maybe you haven't heard me say, maybe ever, but certainly in a, a long time. And it goes like this. If you don't write, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? How many writers do you know when they don't write, they get antsy and frustrated. They get grouchy. They get mad at themselves. What are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to, you're going to stop writing. You believe in it this strongly. You want to do it this well. You're just going to walk away. You're totally good enough to do it. Why not do it? Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, yeah, but I don't feel like I'm good enough to do it. Well, first of all, one, that's a different question. And two, why? Who told you? And why would you believe them? Somebody else who you don't know giving you advice on a thing they're not doing and you're just going to accept that as like chisel that into stone and that's just how it is? You are good enough to do this. If you weren't, you wouldn't be thinking about coming back. You wouldn't have made the progress you made. You'd still be spinning your wheels. And also, even if you were, even if you were spinning your wheels, even if you were feeling totally stuck, you could always ask for help. You're not in this alone. You're not marooned on a desert island or without a, without a volleyball to talk to. You're, you're you. you got to remember what's important. you got to remember why you want to do this. you got to remember your goal. And remember that you're the only one capable of accomplishing that. Other people can have a similar goal with a similar idea in a similar world, but by and large, you're the only one with this view, this story, this capacity to tell that story. And you have to know, you have to know deep in the marrow of you that you're good enough to do it because you're the only one who can. You're the only one who could. You're the only one who will, hopefully. And what are you going to do otherwise? Just feel envy for the rest of your life? Feel like it's a missed opportunity that you let just drive by on an afternoon? Hey, look, there it goes. There's your potential success walking away, leaving you because you're not following is that what you want to do? That's that's your thing? You you want that? Really? Come on. You don't need to do that. There's no reason for that. It's going to be hard. Sure, it's going to be hard. And sure, you're allowed to be scared. You're allowed to be overwhelmed. There's so many moving parts. There's so many things you could get lost in. Sure, absolutely. I get it. But at the same time, this could be made real simple. What do you want to write today? What do you need to write tomorrow? That's it. That's it. Doesn't matter what kind of scene it is. Doesn't matter what your beat structure is like. Doesn't matter what kind of agent you're thinking about querying on some dumbass website. Just matters what you want to write today and what you're planning on writing tomorrow. It can be simple. And that doesn't make it bad and it doesn't make you bad or stupid. It just can be that simple. And you're good enough to do it. And if keeping it simple doesn't help encourage you to do it, then we probably have to have a fairly uncomfortable discussion about why you want to do it in the first place. Because I have often found that keeping things simple 
makes people more likely to actually do it because we eliminate some of the stuff that gets them up in their head that starts telling them they can't do it in the first place. And I'm telling you very clearly, you can do this. You're going to be just fine. Welcome back to your writing. It has missed you. You don't owe it anything. Just get back to work. It's going to be fine. Okay? Great question. On we go to the next. Question number three. What do I need to know about turning my trunk novel into an audio production? I talked about this with somebody. Uh, that's, that's part of why this became a question, because I wanted to f- flesh out more of the answer I gave them. And it goes like this. Um, now, in the person I talked to, they don't have a trunk novel. They just have an idea, and they were thinking about turning it into audio. I'm going to use the example of a trunk novel because I think that's a little bit easier to understand and it's a little more concrete because you can mine it for parts. But the first thing you want to do when, you ha- when you're trying to turn one kind of media into another kind of media is understand the source. What kind of story is it? Don't, don't tell me it's, oh, it's sci-fi. Oh, it's fantasy. I mean, beyond that, it's the story of long lost love. It's the story of perseverance over impossible odds. It's the, the price we pay for not standing up to bullies. Find what your story is. Get it down real crystal clear and specific. Then figure out how you want to frame that in a different medium. If I were going to tell the story, because an audio production, I'm making air quotes here, audio production covers everything from an audio book all the way to like a full radio style dramatization. It's a whole range of things. And that includes stuff like actual play podcasts. And it, it's, it's really anything with a microphone that is engaging for a listener. So you got the whole range of spoken word stuff serialized podcast, individual podcast, making of documentary, anything like that. It's all under that umbrella. But by knowing what our story is about, it is a story of blah, 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 whatever it is, we know how then we can build a lens for our audio production. If we're going to do, if we're going to act our story out in an actual play podcast or a radio style dramatization, we know that if we're framing it around the price you pay for not standing up to a bully, then we know that we need to make sure the majority, if not, not necessarily the entirety, but the majority of the content leads to that or addresses that in some way, shape or form so that the reader, the listener, the audience, whatever you want to call them, get a clear sense of what the story is about. Because Let's be real clear. This does not mean you're going to turn every page into a moment in the story. There are going it's adaptation, right? So there's going to be alterations that need to happen either for brevity or simplicity or expansion because sometimes what's in text needs more words to get it across in the first place like it's not going to be a one-to-one flawless reproduction. That's the big thing I want to put a gold star by, right? Like, it. don't assume that, oh, well, I wrote on chapter three this paragraph, so we have to have it. N- no, you have to have the gist of the paragraph. Maybe if we're lucky, you can script that paragraph verbatim. But by and large, we're interpreting the source material into a way that is more accessible in audio because a lot of prose is not. 
Because if you were to just straight up divide dialogue and characters and everything else is done by a narrator, that narrator's going to really blow out their voice after about three to four hours if they're not careful. And you don't necessarily want to do that. So instead, what we want to do is organize this story thematically, which is why we figure out what the story is about as a whole, and then use that as a lens and a frame to tell the rest of our story. Once we do that, we start breaking it up into its pieces, designating who says what, and what can stay and what can go, and maybe this is where we cut some of the conversations that are okay in the book, but in the grand scheme of things to get our theme across and get our plot across, we don't always need every conversation like the two neighbors have in the background. So we're going to pick and choose our spots and pick and choose our story. And we're going to start restructuring the text, creating a new document that's more screenplay formatted. Uh, there are loads of different software. I would recommend Highland two for this. It's, it's going to make your life infinitely easier certainly better than Scrivener or Final Draft please don't spend the money on Final Draft um, but yeah there's software you can use for this that's going to help you format your ideas so that much like a screenplay or a stage play or something like that or a teleplay you're really getting a sense of visually organizing the information who's speaking what are the stage directions around it what are the sound effects needed and this process will take some time, especially if you've never done it before, because the formatting is going to seem really weird and making the decisions about what stays and what goes is going to be real difficult to do. So my first piece of advice to you, if you're doing this for the first time, include as much as you can, just like in a first draft, we try to get as much of it out of our, as, out of our head as possible. We try to get as much out of it as possible in the audio production stage and then through a second draft and maybe even a third or fourth draft, we start narrowing it down to fit it and shape it for what we need to do. Then we go back in and add like sound effects and settings and we, we sort of create a very loose skeleton and then we perform the sort of first draft of the rehearsals and that's going to include things like finding people to perform the roles and finding people to do the editing and finding people to incorporate the sound effects. And sometimes that's the same as your editor, sometimes not. And it's going to, you know, help you coordinate the physical needs. And I say physical, but this could just easily be virtual. You could do this over conferencing software. You could do this over podcast stuff. This doesn't have to be like everybody show up in my garage at four o'clock in the afternoon. It, it can be, you know, virtual, but it still has physical demands of, well, who, who's going to read these words and who's going to direct this and who's going to make it clear and who's going to have them do a second take and who's going to handle that and how do, are we just pulling the audio straight from Zoom or is this more like a dry run and setting all that stuff up has to happen in the course of that production. And over time and through all those different processes, just like play rehearsal in school, all that stuff shakes out eventually in the end and you're ending up with an audio production. The hard part here that we haven't talked about is that it's a trunk novel, which presumably means from a publishing standpoint, it was lacking something. Maybe it was left incomplete. Maybe it was lacking something cohesive. Maybe it was lacking just some theme and subtext. In the course of transforming it in from one form of media to another, this is your chance to correct the error and you know make it not a trunk novel. Don't do it on the fly. Be deliberate about it. It will make a difference. But you've got to correct the trunk novel and turn it into something untrunked, not trunked, publishable, uh, viable, whatever word you want to use for that. Turn it into something that could have been a published novel, only now we are foregoing the published 
state and turning it into something recorded and audio and vocal. That is how you do it. It's a lot of small little steps and it is not the easiest. It can get expensive. It can take time. It's not something you can just kind of knock together like we're just hopping around on social media for it. This is deliberate. Um, it is popular, but that doesn't mean everybody and their mother needs to do it. Just that everybody and his mother wants to do it right now. But it's important to know that if you're going to go down this road, it is as busy a road as publishing or traditional prose publishing is. Only if you're totally new to it, it's going to be a very foreign road and you're going to have a lot of stumbling points. So please, 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 if you're going to go this route, find people who can answer questions and ask all the questions. Don't rely on just, oh, I heard a podcast about screenwriting, so I know what I'm doing. I'm sure it's helpful. It's great. There are several ones out there that are fantastic. But do more than just listen and then go off and do your own thing. Ask questions. Find experts. Get help. Do not do this alone. Don't think that you're proving something or, or being better if you do it on your own. Go get help for this stuff. It's a lot. What a great question. Love that so much. Are there any questions from people in chat? You know how warm it is in here? All my ice cubes melted already. It is crazy hot in here. Oof. All right. Questions from chat? Uh, today, because it is like a bajillion degrees in here, I'm just doing ice water. I know that's not terribly thrilling information. Um, I just, I had like a, a fairly like dense calorie thing today. Like I really shoved some food in my face. And so I've just been trying to hydrate ever since. So it's just one, two, three cups of, well, I swear it used to be ice water. Now it's just cold water and I'm going to, I'm going to, chug the hell out of it your snow just melted uh, honestly i'm happy that it is let's see uh it's 81 degrees in here so that's about what like 26 celsius uh it's plenty warm in here and i'm thankful because i hate it being cold but at the same time like yesterday it was maybe 20 degrees cooler and i wasn't sweating literally as much as i am right now so yeah I'm trying to cool off and stay hydrated. Is there any substance to Hemingway's old adage of writing drunk and editing sober? Yes-ish. So uh, it has nothing to do with the, the alcoholism. Uh, that's just sort of the window dressing that everybody takes away. But it's the idea, if we replace drunk and sober with subjective and objective, I think that advice takes on a bit more oomph and dimension. While you're writing, write. Write with the purpose of getting the idea out of your head, even if it's messy, even if it has all different kinds of metaphorical and figurative slurs and stumbles and gaps and problems, and maybe you drool a little bit on your shirt, so to speak. Get the story out onto the page in that sort of, um, well, if you're like me, slightly manic and giddy kind of drunkenness until it makes that turn into like mean drunk, but that's more of a John thing than anything else. 
but it was the idea that you you when, when you want to write drunk, you want to write subjectively, get it all out, have it that good time, really throw throw more weight behind the idea of I'm just telling the story, be less critical about what it is as you write it because you can clean it up later. You'll deal with it later. Right now we are just drinking in our story. We are just living and feeling and, and, and coming across that way and just crafting whatever pictures are in our head and putting them on the page. And we're doing it maybe not absolutely carelessly, like we're not sloppy drunks, but we are certainly trying to do it in a way where we are less concerned and less inhibited than at any other time. We are just producing volumes of words and images. That's the writing drunk I tend to think of now because I've tried writing drunk. Uh, it was a pain in the ass. I usually ended up uh, rewriting the same thing four or five times, not out of anxiety, but just because I couldn't concentrate. Uh, I had a better time writing high because it, it would relax me, but that is a different story for a different day. When it comes to editing sober, now we're going to transition away from, well, whatever, I'm just going to get it all on the page. Now we're going to start being critical. Now we're going to look at it detached from the enthusiastic emotion we had when we were writing it. And we are going to look at it in terms of how can we get whatever this is, whatever we wrote, two pages, five pages, 100 pages, two words, 30 words, five chapters, whatever. How can I get that stuff into its best shape? Not what the hell was I thinking when I wrote this? Not, oh my God, this sucks. Why do I let myself do this? Not, none of this is any good. I should just rewrite it. None of that. None of that at all. The important thing here is that you are looking at what you wrote and rather than judging it on some kind of like moralistic scale, look at it in terms of how much work it needs to be improved, to be made better. What do I need to do? Okay, so I need I need to break up my run-on sentences. Those pronouns are vague. And you try to look for and catch the things you can catch. No one is expecting you to edit sober to such a degree that it becomes this sort of like, let's carve this in stone, and it's the perfect thing anybody has ever written. There need be no more writing ever. You just need to write, you just need to edit sober, relative and proportionate to how drunk you were before if our metaphor makes sense. We're not looking to be critical. We're not looking to like kick ourselves when we're down. We're not looking to say, oh, this is so stupid. What a waste of, what am I thinking? No, 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 no. We are looking to do this in such a way that we are coming across with, okay, I wrote this. This thing has been written. What do I need to do to fix it? And do not immediately jump to throw it away and try again because that that accomplishes nothing. That, that's not funny, it's not cute, it doesn't make you likable, it doesn't prove anything, it's not fucking true, it's just dumb. It's a stupid, wasteful thing to say, and it deprives you of credit. It deprives you of the pride of accomplishment, because you immediately think your accomplishment is insignificant or bad or wrong, because it's not perfect as if what everybody wants is perfect, as opposed to what everybody actually wants, which is something engaging. Edit sober. Catch the mistakes you can. Polish what you can to the degree you can. It's not going to be everything. You're going you're gonna to miss some things. That's fine. That's why we can edit more things later. That's why we can bring in extra people to help us. But the substance of write drunk, edit sober has less to do with pickling our livers 
and more to do with the idea of writing subjectively with some degree of abandon versus editing sober with some level of detachment. Yeah, let's, I'm happy with that. That's a, one. It's a great question. I hope that answer makes sense. Um, I'm trying to f- like find a Twitch terms of service friendly way of like making statements as to Hemingway's toxic masculinity and his um, the ending and the punctuating uh, of of Hemingway's um, experiences. Uh, I can't really think of anything right now, so I'll just go out with a bang and ask if more people. Uh, have any other questions? I'm really pleased by what I just said. Like, that just tickled me. I'm quite happy with that. Somebody somewhere is chuckling, and that's really all I want. Write with freedom, edit it, edit with clarity and focus. Yes. Yes. Um, that is that that is a great shorthand way of putting it. Freedom is a good word for it because you want to be free of the. I mean, obviously, if you're writing one story, don't suddenly start writing a different one in the middle of the manuscript. But you want to write with that freedom, um, that independence from worry, that independence of concern about long-term publishing technicality, and just write to produce your story because you can always edit it and get it back into shape later. Just produce. Great question. Love it so much. Anybody else? It is hot enough in, in here that the cats aren't in here. That's that's really telling. Other questions? Else we will march on. Question number four. Oh, man, this is a long one. All right, hang on. What's the best way to approach subtext and dialogue without putting up a big giant sign that says, hey, look, this character actually feels this way. Did you see it? This question tickles me because um, I, I love the idea of a writer like creating a footnote or a parenthetical and just screaming at the reader, hey, did you catch the subtext? Because that amuses me greatly. Also, because the number of writers who like can define subtext is a lot smaller than I thought, so that's always nice to see too. So let's let's kill some birds with some stones and try to define subtext, and then talk about how we we craft it in dialogue. So subtext. Hang on a minute. I gotta I gotta like mop the forehead. Hang on, I'm dying over here. Okay. Subtext is the idea that we are saying a thing without saying it overtly. We are communicating an idea without outright stating that idea. So, for example, we can express our displeasure with something without saying, I am displeased by that thing. We, we talk about it instead in terms of like, I'm really upset, I'm mad, I'm this, I'm that. And the context clues allow us to interpret subtext. We see how the character is acting and moving. For instance... Uh, if you want some more overt subtext, if I talk about how I'm sweaty or how it's you know really stuffy in here or how I have a fan blowing on me, the subtext is I'm hot. But if I turn around and say I'm hot, that's not subtext. That's just text. 
subtext does not only live in dialogue, but subtext can be frequently used in dialogue because we it encourages the, the reader to read on multiple levels at the same time. So it's not just, hey, see the words I'm saying, but also, hey, get the meaning underneath it. The best way to do that is to understand, first of all, what, sub, what subtextual idea you are trying to present. I want the reader to walk away with, I'm hot, it's hot in here. Hot makes me cranky. Something like that. So once we identify what the subtextual idea is, there's your technical term, we identify our subtextual term, and then we figure out different ways to express that term in text. So I can't use any of that language, really, because it kind of spills the beans and gives it away. We don't want to do that. So we want to find different ways to interpret and parse that information. We can talk about the lack of air moving, the incredible high temperature, uh, the fact that the fan is blowing on me, uh, the fact that, you know, I'm sitting here, like, mopping my forehead, and I'm trying to, you know, not sit underneath any direct lights. So what we're trying to do when we craft our dialogue, in addition to the words we say, but also the actions taken in and around all the talking, we're trying to create context. We're trying to create suggestion and implication. And at that point, we should point out that not every reader's going to get it. And that's not your fault. It's okay if some readers miss your subtext. The internet has this particular talent for making us feel like everybody misses subtext. There's literally a thing on the internet called a whoosh, where like the idea whooshes over somebody's head on a post or in a reply to something. Not everybody's going to get subtext. That's not your fault. Yes, obviously, we could take everything way too far and, you know, get so far up our own asses that we're, you know, having that literary fiction discussion where the butter dish is really, you know, speaking about the oppression of women. And in fact, it's just a butter dish. And we're over-interpreting symbols and we're, we're like double and triple layering with meanings that don't mean any goddamn thing, but we're trying really hard to seem impressive. That's the deep end of the pool. That's going too far. We're not, we're not talking that. We're just talking about, I have idea X. I don't want to say X outright because I'm trying to like, you know, polish my writing and make you have to work a little bit as a reader. So I'm going to talk around X and describe X through Y and Z and Q and all these other things. And I'm hoping that in the things I have chosen, the negative space that is X will become clear to you. So in our dialogue, rather than emphasize and try to nail the exact perfect words, you know, I'm going I'm to say this, but I mean that, rather than find like a one-to-one -one comparative, aim for that context. And sometimes that means we have to do it outside of just talking. Sometimes in order to get the idea across that a character is, you know, like uh, big mad and super upset, we don't only want to have language for it. Sometimes we want to have the character emote and move and gesture and, and, and be silent and be, you know, make a face and that kind of stuff. Remember that dialogue is arguably, yes, just the talking, but there's more to communicating dialogue than just talking. Last piece of advice on this, don't try too hard. I'm not saying like sandbag it. I'm saying don't force it. If you force it, you're going to miss the point of writing with subtext. Whether or not the reader gets it is, is a, a different thing for a different day. But if you're trying to force it in an effort to create subtext, 
it's also possible that the idea you were trying to create subtextually isn't worth the subtext. Like, yeah, John's hot. Okay. Why, why are we subtextually saying that and not just saying it and moving on? Don't overthink the manufacturing process for subtext. Yes, subtext will add deeper meaning and, and more crunch or more more depth or facets to something. Sure, I think I said depth twice there. I apologize. But it's going to add more to it, more meat to the bone. But ultimately, not everybody's going to see it. And if you're having trouble with it and you're just not sure, trust your context clues and it'll probably work out just fine. And then when in doubt, put up that big giant sign. Why not? What are they going to do, yell at you? They can't hear you. They're just reading a book. Don't overthink subtext. Uh, it, it's a thing that develops over time when you're trying to make a point. You, you get better at it, just like writing dialogue, just like describing things. Sometimes you can create a description that describes a thing without you outright saying the three easy clues that would give it away. Same idea. Don't overthink it. You'll be fine. On we go. Question five. What is prose forward writing and why is it different? Uh, there are so many words missing from this question. I apologize. And why is prose forward writing different than plot forward writing? Which one is better? Oh boy. Okay. We're going to, we're going to maybe kind of get some head wedged, maybe kind of a little bit up some ass. So strap in. I'm going to try and do this not really technically and not really pretentiously because this this topic in particular, oof, we, we can go deep in pretense. So let's see if we can do this. Plot forward writing is writing that prioritizes the production and, and progress of story. This happens, that happens, this happens, that happens. Then this happens, then that happens, then this cause to that effect. It is very much story first and it is story specific first we went over here we went over there this happened we responded to it then we went over here and this happened and that happened and then we put these two pieces together and then we did this and then we did that and it can be very procedural and it can be very linear even if that line isn't necessarily a straight line there's always a movement from here to there and the plot becomes sort of the big thing of the story it's a story about you know two hobbits dropping jewelry in a volcano. That is plot forward when we talk about it so that the substance of the story is the story as it's written on the page. We're not really diving into subtext. We're not really trying to interpret it to be more than it is. It's just, oh, that is too, it's a fantasy novel where these characters do this thing and those characters do that thing and then in the end, this happens. It's just the story as it is straightforward plot forward is what i think everybody writes from time to time to time it's completely normal it's completely natural it is not like the entry level kit it is not the base model it's just how people tell stories we we tell them in plot forward ways if i were to ask you hey what did you do yesterday you're gonna give me like a plot forward description and that doesn't make it bad or wrong. It's just, that's how you chose to tell me the story. That's plot forward. All right. Where things get, ooh, is where we start shaping this into prose forward. Prose forward writing is where we have this story with the plot. And rather than just 
tell you about how it's a bunch of hobbits chucking some jewelry in a volcano and that it's a story where characters do this and this happens and that happens. Prose forward writing does that, but it tries to make you aware of how it is written. So it's a little showy-offy. It's a little bit deliberate in sort of patting the writer on the back sometimes. Ah, oh, yes, I will certainly tell you about how the hobbits took the ring to Mount Doom. But, you know, first I'm going to do it with, you know, a, a series of Italian sonnets. Because I know Italian sonnets, and you, plebeian, do not. Prose forward writing runs the risk of sounding very academic, very stuffy, very elitist, very classist, very racist, very sexist, very patriarchal, very heteronormative, very white supremacist, very not great things. That doesn't mean it is. It just, you're, you're skirting right up against that line sometimes, depending on who's doing the, the prose and how the prose is constructed. It's, it's not bad. There is a time and a place for it. Like, those places where they have elbow patches on their jackets and those places where people really give a shit about their ivory towers. That shit, they they love prose forward. Oh, man, prose forward is their currency du jour. Man, that's what you, you want to aim for prose forward. Now, we over here in the real world who work for a living, who give a shit, um, prose forward has a value to us too. And it's not just that sort of like, ooh, bad, don't do that value. Prose forward writing is where we get a chance to actually show off how we write. And it's not just, look how clever I am. I added giant birds. Instead, we're going to craft a story that's about, you know, the relationship between Sam and Frodo. And we're going to talk about the way they look at each other and how everybody's really just down for Bill the Pony. And then maybe, you know, we'll talk a little bit about like how Gandalf doesn't fucking do anything in The Hobbit. And we're going to use our craft and our ability to shape words and express ideas so that we're doing more than just saying, this happened, then that happened, then this happened. And we're going to get some art in here. And we're going to use flourishing language. We're going to use all different kinds of things, not just long sentences, not just semicolons, not just big-ass archaic adjectives, but a level and construction of writing that allows you, the writer, to show off to the reader and go like, hey, look, I can write a really pretty sentence about, you know, Isengard. Or, oh, I can describe, you know, this arrow and this, you know, shooting match that Robin Hood gets into. I can say more than just like, you know, Robin totally, you know, no scope lolled. We can talk about how, you know, nigh upon the morrow did uh, another arrow split nigh another in twain. We can get real fucking fancy. Sure we can. Why not? Who gives a shit? What are they going to do? Stop us? It's our book. There's a value in prose forward because it gives us a little bit of a platform to stand up and be like, "Woo, hey, I'm doing a thing. And there's a value to plot forward because it moves a story along. One is not better than the other. They are two very different tools in the toolbox, though. Reach for plot forward at times where you just need to move that story along. Reach for prose forward when the story's already underway and it's got its momentum and it's developing and you want to take a hot second and kind of flex a little on them. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you can't exclusively and only do that because it's kind of a jerk move after a while and the reader will get bored and detach from things. Just like you can't only do a plot forward thing unless we're writing a children's story because the reader will get detached because it's just too, like, dry, sterile. 
So one is not better than the other. They're just two different tools in the toolbox. There's a question in chat. Would really voicey novels be considered prose forward, like a story with a focus on the words themselves? Kinda. The best way I can put it is kinda. It's not universally true because you can still have a very voicey novel that is very plot forward because the character just loves to talk about what happened in the story. It is not uh, automatically that prose forward is voicey. Sorry. But when the focus is on the words and the language, whether that, whether that is diegetic to the story and, and natural in the story, or what, maybe diegetic wasn't the right word, when it, when it is consistent internally in the story, like, this, like the, the narrating character is high on their own supply, and look how great I am at talking about this shit, it can be prose forward. Um, it, I, I would love to give you a percentage and go, yes, 60%. I, I know there's no percentage. It, it's probably to your advantage to think about it that way. Uh, it would not be wrong. You will not like lose cool writer points or anything. Um, it's just that the most common expression of prose forwardness is an over attachment to the way language is played out on the page. It's an over-attachment to not so much the substance of the sentence, but the how and the way of the sentence. Look, I wrote this thing with two dependent clauses. Aren't I special? Sure, Kevin. Sure. Did you get the point across? Did the reader have something to picture in their brain? Uh, if so, it doesn't really matter how we got there. The important thing is that we got there. So, voiciness, can, can we say it that way? Excess voice, a lot of voice, heavy voice application can lead us towards prose forward, but it is not an automatic thing. I hope that question makes sense. This comes up in circles where there are writers and there are authors and there is fiction and there's genre fiction. And you have to say one with some level of contempt because otherwise you're going to like not get invited to the cool writer table, right? Like we are auteurs. We, we produce these things. We are not just people who make stories. We're, you know, up our own asses. That's this debate. I hate it. It is one of the exact reasons why I do the job I do because it is important to know these two things and it is important to know that at times you are going to fall on one side or the other and it doesn't mean you're wrong. It's just that sometimes you're going to be prose forward and your prose forward is going to look different than my prose forward, going to look different than their prose forward. And sometimes you're going to be plot forward and your plot forward is going to look different than mine and look than others. But yes, prose forwardness when it becomes the, the space you spend the majority of your time in, uh, up shoot the pretentious assholes of the world. So it is not much about lyricism or voice or using beautiful language to evoke emotion, but fancy language for its own sake. Instead of limiting it to fancy, let's call it elevated, inflated language. It can be lyrical, it can be beautiful, it can be lots of different things. But when the priority is not evoking emotion when the priority is sort of like calling attention to the how you wrote it that's prose forward evoking emotion becomes this secondary thing like oh yeah I, I guess it evoked emotion but look how I wrote it that's that's usually always been my rule stick for it good question good stuff on we go question number six uh 
question that came up in the same discussion as the pros forward plot forward one. Does dialogue weaken a climax? Now, there is a school of thought that says too much talking during a big moment in your story makes that moment weaker because the reader has to stop and parse the sound of people talking. And I understand that school of thought because, like, if we're, if we're having this big sword fight between two mortal foes, right, we're not going to sit there and suddenly each side's going to drop a monologue in between, like, lightsaber fights, right? They're just, they're just not. But at the same time, it is possible that, depending on what you're writing, the dialogue is the climax, like a legal thriller, where the, the defense attorney catches the criminal, like, square in a lie on the stand, the only way they're going to do that is by dialogue. So it is possible that dialogue is strengthening the climax because we're we're getting the, you know, the bad guy's going to get what, you know, what they're owed in a minute. Some dialogue can weaken a climax. For instance, uh, remember that string of movies, like action movies run into this problem where like somebody does a thing and then there's like a quip or some sarcasm or somebody makes a little joke. And they think like, ha ha, we're putting a little button on this scene. Look at the levity we're putting in. Or with a horror moment, like the jump scare or something happens, and then somebody's like cracking a joke. That can weaken that beat because all of a sudden, instead of giving us that moment to catch our breaths and feel like, oh God, what's going to happen next? Or, wow, did you see how cool that explosion was? Now we got to stop and be like, oh, roll my eyes. Yeah, great. Make a pun and then we'll move on. Some dialogue can weaken beats. But dialogue does not automatically weaken a climax. It, it just, it's not universal. There is a time and a place for dialogue and a climax, even if that dialogue is something impactful. For instance, let's look at A Princess Bride. In The Princess Bride, um, Inigo Montoya is fighting the six-fingered man, and there's dialogue in that scene. There's dialogue in that scene because he's reinforcing his emotional state. He's constantly repeating who he is and what's going on. And then at the end of the, at the, end of the fight, as, as the count has been cornered and is dying, he, he begs for his life and he says, give me anything. And then Inigo stabs him and says, give me back my father. And the spoilers for The Princess Bride, I guess. Uh, the important point of that is that if you took the dialogue out of that scene, you lose so much of the impact of it. And it just becomes a sword fight. Dialogue has the potential to weaken any number of scenes, any kind of beat. But dialogue also has the ability to strengthen it. Not all climaxes are these silent, ex physically explosive things. Yes, a lot of media, a lot of genres frame them that way. Like an action story is probably not going to have a lot of talking during the climax because it's an action story. But a comedy... Uh, a romance novel, um, you're totally going to have dialogue in it because how else are you going to have the two characters communicate that they love each other? They're just going to like stare at each other for a hot minute and make like goldfish face? You got to have the talking. So, yeah, dialogue does not automatically weaken a climax. It's just that in some cases, dialogue is the worst choice you could make. Does that make sense? It's a good question. Are there any questions from chat while I start in on my next giant glass of water? Mm -hmm. 
do I think that every writer needs a niche? Why or why not? No, I do not think. It, well, okay. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna revise my answer. I do not think every writer needs to worry about needing a niche because I think as every writer writes, whatever it is they're writing, they are going to define their niche. You know, so let's say you are writing your book series, whatever it is, in whatever genre it is. That's going to carve out space in that genre. That's going to carve out space as a writer. That's going to carve out space among your contemporaries and your peers. And it's going to, to some degree, define you. Now, that doesn't mean it's necessarily a permanent limitation. You write one book, you haven't pigeonholed yourself that you're only going to write that one thing unless you decide not to write other things. But you've carved out a space for yourself. You've carved out a niche. You didn't mean to. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to write this particular kind of book. Maybe you did. But just in the course of you telling your story, in the course of you creating it, a niche was made. I don't think writers need to go out of their way to like super complicate that and wonder, oh my God, what is my niche? What is this? How do I make my, like, those are those are nice questions, but they are not necessarily the best questions to ask. Like, it's not that big a deal. It, the internet will tell you it's a big deal because the internet needs something to talk about. But it's just, you know, space for yourself. You're going to define yourself by your work. That doesn't mean you will identify by your work because if you write a book that doesn't sell as well as your other books, that doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means that book didn't sell well as the other book. But I think writers will craft their own niches along the way, and I think writers don't need to worry about niches past that. So I kind of answered your question and kind of didn't. The absolute case against niches is the case that we used to make way back in the day that when we thought about ourselves in terms of niches, we were limiting ourselves. And we were saying that, well, if you're going to limit your, if you're going to write only in this like little itty bitty subgenre in this little itty bitty space, you are somehow closing the door on you writing something radically and totally different. And way back in the day, that was absolutely true. And what what would happen is, especially in traditional publishing spaces, people would say, "No, you're a fill in the blank kind of writer. You write this kind of book. Um, why would you ever want to write anything different?" And you still find stories that are structured that way where people like identify a character based on the niche they have filled forever and the idea of them changing that niche is fundamental to the story and maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. But in terms of being a writer in the real world, I think you create your own niche just by making stuff. And beyond that, beyond being able to say like, this is my space and this is how I write and this is the direction I'm going in and this is my goal. I think anything beyond that is potentially unnecessary worry. I think that is fodder and fuel for really running yourself into some trouble. I wouldn't worry about it. You're going to create a niche just by making your stuff. So just make your stuff. Good question. It really is a good question. Uh, I, I watch too many writers derail themselves, sweating things like niches and subgenres and like, 
the different permutations and flavors of everything. Like it's nice to know, but it's not critical. And honestly, you could change it. It's okay. Good question though. Anything else? Question seven. I am genuinely surprised this question survived the drafting process. Oh, there actually is a question. What's the best way to approach dealing with heavy topics in fiction? Does a topic need to be wary of going too far lest they negate the impact of the story? Okay, it depends on what the heavy topic in particular is. It could be... Um, if we're if we're talking about a heavy topic that might be triggering for somebody, like slap a trigger warning up in there. But if you're worried that the heavy topic, whatever it might be, will suddenly like derail the story, then at an organizational level, you have to wonder if this story is the best place for that heavy topic, or if the the view you're taking on this heavy topic is best told in the way you're telling it. I want to handle heavy topic number two. Maybe I need to tailor how I craft this topic. Maybe this story isn't the best place for it. Maybe it's something like that. But um, you should always be aware of how a topic can affect your story so that you can keep your story moving, so that you can keep your story kind of afloat. And if you're worried that if I throw in this heavy topic, the whole thing is going off the rails, uh, listen to that gut instinct and don't let it. And that maybe means tailoring or, or, or paring down the heavy topic, or maybe it means omitting it entirely, or restructuring the story so that, you know, this big thing doesn't come along and tip the whole apple cart over. There's no one best way. I think it's just a matter of being conscious of it. And don't go out of your way to force a heavy topic in. Uh, there was a whole like vein of publishing advice that was like, yeah, you got to have a heavy topic, so put that shit in there. And it, it got us nowhere. Like it, it did not make a difference. I just mean if a book becomes personal catharsis for the author rather than more of a general and universal thing that resonates with readers, you are assuming that personal catharsis is incapable of resonating with readers. Catharsis for yourself can help others in their own catharsis. Like you having a moment with yourself and realizing something that you are parsing through your writing can have that exact same effect on a reader. It's not that you need to exclude catharsis and it, it doesn't always mean you need to double down on it either. There's a balance every writer is going to strike for whatever they're saying. But um, if you feel you are steering more into personal catharsis and you're not intending to, if you've caught yourself pull back if however you're feeling like nah this is the book where i'm going to get into it then get into it and be deliberate about it don't assume that just it being there don't assume that the personal catharsis in your great moment of revelation existing suddenly means the reader is going to be disconnected because it's not necessarily true it's also likely that what's a catharsis for you will just seem to the reader to be like a nice scene don't assume that the reader will automatically get it because they they don't know as much as you do based on what it is you're talking about. If you're worried about it, though, tread lightly. But by and large, chances are you're possibly overthinking it and you might not really need to go as deep as you want. Now, there was this other question. What are my thoughts and feelings on the UFC-WWE merger? Oh, um, 
I hate it. I hate it because um, I think those are two things that are not the same. Um, just because they are athletic humans who tend to not wear shirts does not mean they are the same sort of uh, art. Uh, one is one is more art than sport. The other is more sport than art. They are still each of those things, but the, the percentages are skewed. I think... Um, I think it's a very desperate move to reposition a billionaire sex offender out of the way. I think it will exacerbate the pre-existing issues uh, the WWE have. Um, I'm worried that it will be more of a doorway to advertise flagging UFC sales by interspersing them inside WWE material. I don't think the two, th- I, I, I can't say they're oil and water, but I don't like the mix of the two. One is scripted on purpose because it's a dramatic soap opera, and the other is people fucking each other up for life. They're not the same thing. Those are my thoughts. I'm going to answer this question now. Do I have any recommendations for short story collections? No. I don't read short story collections. I'm sorry. Uh, I get asked an awful lot for recommendations, and I don't have any. Uh, especially short story collections because they are way out of favor and I wouldn't even know where to begin unless we are dealing with a very specific flavor like literary fiction loves them, some short story collections, and literary fiction is not my preferred go-to reading for enjoyment stuff. So, no. Um, I know short story fictions are one of the internet's, like, new let's bring it back again buzzwords because it means that people who haven't yet written longer form fiction or who think that the pathway to stuff is through anthologies because it makes them seem like they've written a lot so they must be good people Uh, i know that's like a real popular way to go but i i could not begin to recommend to you some to read um sorry it's it's not my cup of tea Um, I think they're a useful teaching tool. I think knowing how to craft short fiction is a valuable tool, but I do not think it is immediately comparable to full novel fiction. They're different animals. They're different rules. There's different stuff going on. And if you want to lean in and do short stories, that's great. But you're going to get better doing them, not necessarily by thinking in terms of collection, but in thinking in terms of craft and the let's call it the miniaturization or the simplification process. I don't mean like making it childlike simple. I mean boiling it down to its core essence and developing each step in the craft. But no, I do not have any short story collection recommendations. Um, if you do, I'd love to know. Leave them in the comments down below. But it's it's not my cup of tea. I wouldn't avoid them. I'm not like, ew, short stories. But they're certainly not a thing I think of when I think of like, honestly, honestly, as I'm sitting here, every time somebody talks to me about a short story collection, I tend to think they have like tied themselves in a little bit of a knot or a little bit of a construction cul-de-sac. Like they've detoured and they've gone off road and the road is closed and they're stalled out. And and we're, we're doing this thing because we're trying to say something. But if, if you're really trying to say something like, Take the full swing, please. Uh, To use a baseball metaphor, don't check your swing. 
Go do a full, like, you have something to say. Why would you limit yourself to a short story? You have something to say. Why would you try to generate 10 different short stories? Say the big thing. That's just me. This is my opinion. But no, I do not have any recommendations for short story collections. More people should try them. More people should also not try them. I think short stories have a time and a place. And I think my fear is that much like fetch, uh, that time has passed and we're, not, we're just not bringing it back. There's just no reason to. I think short stories might be done. That's just me. On we go. Oh my God, these two questions were designed to just make me uh, sigh a lot. Question number eight, what are the pros and cons of participating in a short story collection that covers multiple genres? Okay, uh, one, you'll be, in a sh you'll be in a short story collection. So that gives you a chance to uh, grow some kind of readership within the safety of not only being the only author involved. However, uh, the cons are significant. Short story collections typically don't pay very well. Uh, they don't necessarily lead to greater traditional publishing stuff just because, oh, I was in a short story collection. That's nice. Would you like a cookie? Um, covering multiple genres is also a giant red flag because it's going to make that collection seem disorganized. It might be thematically appropriate, like, oh, all our stories have to do with loss. Okay, but that's real broad for an anthology or a collection. It just kind of seems like we've stapled a few ideas together. I'd like to see more structure out of that. Uh, also, editing in a short story collection varies wildly because usually that is farmed out to multiple people. So there's a real inconsistency in style and a real inconsistency in voice. Uh, let's go find more pros so it doesn't sound like I'm totally shitting on all these things. Uh, a pro in a short story collection is it's a great idea if you're trying to get started and you're trying to sort of build yourself a little thing and, and get your feet wet and used to writing on a deadline and used to writing for structure and used to writing for publication. It can be a great way to get started. I'm, yeah, I'm concerned about the multiple genre-ness of it. My fear is that... Um, it's going to either fall apart as a project or feel too disjointed. And hopefully uh, it's trying to lean on the collective marketing ability of all the people involved as opposed to it being an individual effort. I see more red flags than I do green flags here is what I'm saying. Tread with caution. Now, there was a question in chat. Is there still a value in short fiction? We're far removed from Bradbury submitting to magazines, but are they worth approaching for writers in terms of craft or getting your name out there? There is value in short fiction. Let's start. We'll, we'll go with that. There is value in short fiction. It is, a, it is a fantastic teaching tool. It will teach you concision. It will teach you brevity. It will teach you decision making. It will teach you structure. In terms of getting your name out there, where is it that you think your name's going to be? Remember, we're dealing with Short fiction as a whole is a different pool, a different ocean, if we're going to go with our fish and ocean metaphor. It's a different body of water than our long-form fiction. And yeah, there's some overlap, but you got to remember that being a big fish in short fiction ocean is not necessarily immediately transferable to being a big fish in long-form fiction. It might get your name out in terms of other short fiction. Yeah, you're a great short fiction writer. And for a lot of people, that's what they want. That's fantastic. And if, if you're about to ask me if it counts in the same way that long form counts, yeah, it totally does. But 
the transition you would have to make from short fiction to long fiction in terms of your craft is substantial. There, it's not just do more plotting. It's not just write more beats along the way. It's also in the pacing at which you develop things and the depth to which you develop things and the number of parts that are moving. Like it's, it's not just crank it up to 10 and just repeat the process. There's far more, there's far more and different gears to use. Short fiction is generally not very heavy on subtext, for instance, because it doesn't have the space to really afford that. Usually if it does, it has like one singular thread of subtext because that's really what the story is about. But by and large, you're not seeing the depth because it's not there. You're trying to, you know, carry 20 pounds of stuff in a five pound bag. It's not without its value, it's not without its use, it's not without its merit, but at the same time, I, I'm, John, personally bothered by the number of people who are like, I'm going to break into fiction by starting in short fiction. I get where you're going, I get the enthusiasm, I love the enthusiasm, but please know, you are more likely to run into walls than you are doors that are open for you. Now, does that mean I think you are incapable of doing short fiction? No. And I don't mean you specifically, Ross, asking the question. I'm speaking generally. I don't think people who only do short fiction are incapable of doing long form or vice versa, but they are two different media. They're two different things for two different aspects. And I know Amazon is currently on like a, a short fiction buying splurge like they're grabbing all different kinds of stories from all different kinds of places but the reason they're doing that is not because they approve of short fiction it's because they're looking for fuel to feed the streaming economy it's not being done to be like oh short story is the real true artists area no it's because holy shit we have to crank out some fiction otherwise you know other streaming services disney will come along and make more shows and no one will watch the billionaires programs anymore oh boo hoo oh boo hoo you had a follow-up question of the days of short fiction as a proven ground for prospective novelists and newer writers are, are well and truly over. I think so. I think, I mean, it was great. Short fiction as a proven ground for a novelist is a great idea if we still had typewriters and no internet and we weren't slowly affected by an attention economy or a streaming economy or the prevalence of, of self-publishing. If we didn't have those things, absolutely. You go short fiction, then you go novel, then you move on. Sure, it's a great stepping stone progression. That's the old model. It worked for a very long time. And then we'd started doing things like more aggressive self-publishing. Then we started, you know, interneting. Then we started all different kinds of genre fiction is taking over. And then we, you know, we renaissanced long-form fiction and went into mega long-form fiction with epic fantasy novels and all that. I think short fiction is... An antique. There's value to it. There's craft to it, sure. But I think in terms of like, I'm using this to build my portfolio to move forward. I think that is an outdated way of thinking. And I'm afraid more people are being held back by it than anything else. It is a romantic idea. Absolutely. I, I, I am still deeply romanced by the idea of a writer with a type, you know, somebody sitting at a typewriter and a, and a glass of something with like a chunky ice cube. And maybe in my head, it's always like a cigarette and an ashtray that is gently smoldering. And there's like, you know, somebody breezing in and breezing out and you're just banging away and banging away. And there's like gauzy curtains. I love that shit. I eat that up. I love that idea. But at the same time, the, 
the short fiction part of that romance is not the important thing that generates the romance. The romance is found in the writing. If you want to get a typewriter and start knocking your shit out, go for it. I would recommend actually, if you want to really be productive about it, buy a really clicky mechanical keyboard. Um, Logitech makes a couple. They're very typewriter-esque. The one I have is amazing. Uh, I, I love it. It feels like a nice hybrid between a traditional typewriter and a regular keyboard. But yeah, short fiction, I think is, I think it's over. I really do. I'm sorry. Uh, in the same way that we all sort of had that moment where we got into pop punk and then it kind of went away or we all, we were all really big in ska for a hot minute. And now we pretend like we're not. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I think it's kind of past. Sorry. Question nine. Why is representation still so difficult? Oh, okay. Okay. There's, there's a few reasons. Let's get into it. Representation is really difficult because um, the people seeking representation uh, are still treated like an obscure minority by the majority who doesn't feel that representation matters because they, the majority, see themselves represented by default, so they don't stop and think about what representation is like for anybody else. It wouldn't occur to them in the same way that you don't stop and think about what ha what's happening with a bird outside. It just, it's just not a thought in their head. Two, I don't know if you know this, but in the communities in and around representation seeking, it's incredibly divisive as to the degree of representation. Well, this thing does this okay, but that thing didn't do it right at all. Or, or this is too much, or that's not enough. And there's no cohesion. There's no internal sense of like representation at has to be at least this tall to ride the ride. There's, there's such a crab in the bucket mentality of kind of spite or punitive damage for this idea of like, well, you didn't do it right. Like you see this with daredevil and the blind community, or you saw this with creed three and the hard of hearing deaf community or people who are formatting eBooks and they're dealing with low vision readers, like, uh, or even in prose in terms of what it really means to have a, uh, an LGBTQ plus character, like, what justifies this and what defines this and how do you understand this and how do you, how do you cover things that are represented in spectrum? How do you cover things that are not definable in one single aspect or one single dimension? And I think part of what makes representation so difficult is that there isn't cohesion and everybody's still trying to nail down like one single facet to speak for the greater whole. Now, usually in some cases, that facet is the facet that pertains to them. I want to see my representation look in a way that represents me or speaks to me the most. Even if other people who could be represented aren't represented to the same degree, I still want mine. Get it for me. I think that's, I think that's the big obstacle in a lot of spaces. Um, I think that's part of what leads the divisiveness. Because you look at something represented on a spectrum, whether it's disability or whether it's identity or something like that, and you see there's such variation that you cannot appoint one single like like spokes spokes element or spokesperson and be like, oh, you're you're that's it. That's that's all the that's all the community for this whole thing put on one person. You can't put that on one person's shoulders. That's like super unfair. Also, I think that's might be how religions start. But you you can't pin everything on one person because 
one person does not represent the whole. They are just part of the whole. And because the majority and because the way things are structured according to the majority's rules say that we have to appoint one thing and use that as our lens rather than represent things as a spectrum as they actually are. I think that's what makes representation so difficult. There's also a level of discomfort inherent in representation. All of a sudden, we're going to talk about things that don't fit the majority. The majority is going to push back, whether that's overt and slur-filled or whether that's cold and passive and the silent treatment or whether that's just a level of general disagreement where you're going to say somebody isn't behaving appropriately or that they disagree with a thing or they're just not going to talk about it because of whatever reason. Like all those different possibilities are there to push back against the idea of representation, not because people are inherently or fundamentally always evil. A lot of it is just learned behavior by people who haven't given themselves a chance to do different, but you're going to encounter such diversity in representation that there is a requirement to account for that diversity, a requirement to account for the fact that it's a spectrum rather than a singularity. And that means there needs to be more of it. And the majority is going to push back against that idea because, oh my God, that means the majority might not be so major anymore, which sounds like it shouldn't be a problem until you flip that question around and realize the reason why the majority doesn't want to be a minority is because they see how they treat minorities and they don't want that to happen to them. But there's also something to say for the fact that representation is tough to do even if you're a member of the group because you are trying to account for things that maybe you've never tried to articulate before. Like your specific degree of frustration with this element or that element or this thing or that thing or your experience here, while it might be somewhat universal in some contexts, if you're trying to go in one specific direction, no, I mean exactly what it's like right here, right now in this moment, it's difficult to articulate. That's not your fault. You're not stupid. It's not wrong. It's just that it's hard to articulate a thing. Language is limited that way. That's why we have to use so much of it. But representation fundamentally is difficult because it is trying to pin a single thing on a wide group, whatever that group might be. Uh, and that wide group is so used to being a minority and so fractured by the presence of the majority, uh, it becomes difficult to sort of make contingents appeased, let alone happy. That's why representation is difficult. Great question. Are there any other questions as we continue our march forward? I did not realize how long I just talked on that answer. I apologize. I was trying to pick up speed. Let's see if we can do it for the last couple questions. Questions? I know that was a lot. That was a lot, but I really wanted to make that point. On we go. Question 10. You talked about direct sales last week. I did. Uh, if I'm not on Amazon, doesn't that impact my potential sales? No. No. Okay, we're we're gonna have a we're gonna have a frank discussion now about sales. Okay. <sighs> Why do you think everybody's on Amazon? Why? 
think about this for a second. Don't don't give me numbers. Don't talk to me about it about percentage cuts and this and that. Why are people on Amazon? Why are so many people on Amazon? Could it be because Amazon is the biggest thing going and everybody else is on it and you don't want to be left out and you want to be included and you want to have the same experience and you want to follow the guides and wisdom of all the other people? Like, it's part of a group and you want to be part of that group. It's an us versus them. There's nothing wrong with that, but we do have to recognize that for a lot of people, they get on Amazon because everybody else is on Amazon and the assumption is that all the readers are on Amazon. And yeah, for better or for worse, Amazon has wedged itself into this position where they are very much a go-to for loads of everything. They're practically the fabled everything app or their subsidiaries are as well. But your overall total sales do not need to only be in Amazon. If we were talking about something other than books, we would probably be having a discussion that involves this idea of don't put all your eggs in one basket. Like you want to make sure you're, you're diversifying your portfolio. What up, Wu-Tang? But we want to make sure we're coming at things in a lot of different ways. You wouldn't want to say everything is all this one thing because what happens if that one thing doesn't work? You're sunk. But I don't know why we are unwilling or afraid or not sure to have that same kind of discussion when it comes to where I sell my book. Amazon is not the only game in town. It's the biggest game, but that doesn't make it the best game. There are loads of things that are biggest and best that are just not necessarily always worth your time, like any of the programming on CBS or uh, daytime television news or, you know, um, anything a boomer does. Just because that's real popular doesn't mean it's necessarily what you need to engage with. And the idea that it impacts your potential sales speak to just screams to me in very loud text that you don't understand where your sales come from and you don't understand who's going to buy your book. Amazon is not where your sales are. Amazon is a vehicle for sales. It's no different than if we sold this thing at Walmart. It's no different than if we sold this thing in a lemonade stand on the corner. It's no different than if we sold this thing out of the trunk of your car. It's just a vehicle and not being involved in this one particular way does not necessarily limit your total sales. Yeah, some people who only buy things on Amazon aren't going to buy it, but it's also likely that the people who are only on Amazon wouldn't buy your thing in the first place because they just didn't like it even though it is on Amazon. Your potential sales are potential for a reason. We don't know. And if you only put your eggs in the Amazon basket and it doesn't work, what are you going to say then? What are you going to blame them? What are you going to decide and what are you going to do? Direct sales, sell off your own website, sell to, in a diverse number of ways, is a far better approach. I don't care whether we're talking Amazon or Barnes & Noble or, you know, Chirp or uh, Libro FM or off of Bookshop or um, Etsy or Gumroad or Payhip or, uh, I don't know, bootleg zines in a bathroom at a gas station. If you only limit yourself to one avenue of sales that could be a problem. Amazon's a big player, but they also are a player with an unpleasant contract, unreasonable DRM, an absolute stranglehold on all manners of publication, a complete willingness to disregard your, your wishes when it comes to pricing, scheduling, and determination. And they're a bully. 
So why don't we talk about any of those things when we talk about limiting your potential sales? Or are you still caught up in the mistake of, oh my God, I'm, put, I'm publishing my book on Kindle, you guys. Look carefully at what it is you're trying to accomplish. And can we swap Amazon out? And will we still have the same discussion? Your, your sales are your sales and your audience, if given an opportunity, want to buy your book. The way they buy it and where they buy it can be controlled by you. Just because you're not going to show up when I go to the website and type your name in a box doesn't mean that you're losing sales. There's plenty of stuff I can't buy on Amazon. It really, seriously, that exists. There's plenty of big name things I can't buy on Amazon, like digital PlayStation games. Can't do that on Amazon anymore. Uh, this software that I use to produce these streams. Can't get that on Amazon either. Does that limit my ability to produce? Does that limit my stuff? No. Amazon's just a tool. Reliance on any one tool can be a hindrance if we become over-reliant on it. So no, it doesn't impact your potential sales. Please stop considering Amazon to be the be-all, end-all. Think about your goal and can we wiggle Amazon like a loose tooth out of the way? Or was your goal entirely just to be on Amazon, period, full stop? Next question. Question 11. How do I know a trunk novel is a trunk novel? And how do I know it's worth salvaging if it is a trunk novel? A trunk novel is a trunk novel. When it's run its course, when it's complete, but at the present exact moment, not necessarily publishable. And that might be because you wrote it and it's done, but the writing's not really great. Or you wrote it and it's done, but it's talking about a trend that has long since passed. Or you wrote it and it's done and it's just, you're not feeling it. You're not excited about it. It seems like a tough sell. Even though it's complete, it's got characters and plot and a world and all those bells and whistles, it's just... It just lacks some pizzazz. It's a trunk novel when you wrote it and you can identify all the parts, but it, it's just not as good as some of the other stuff. And that's okay. It's very okay. It's not a sign of failure. It's not a fault. It's not an indicator that you shouldn't be writing at all. Loads and loads of published people, big name people who we identify solely by their last names, write trunk novels that you will never know about. Never, ever, ever know about. Because they were. that's what got written in between the things you do know about. That's okay. How do I know if a, if a trunk novel is worth salvaging? Chances are it's going to be salvageable in parts. The names here, the plot there, the characters this, the world building that. Very rarely is a trunk novel going to be salvaged just by changing one thing. It's possible, sure, but don't count on it. Don't like say like, oh, all I need to do is make this person's name Steve and we're fine. It's very rarely, if ever, that simple. It's more a matter of, I wrote this thing and it's, it's okay. Can I repurpose it? Can I take these parts and use the parts, clean them up? Can I use the parts to make something different? That's where the salvage value comes in. Consider a trunk novel to be that sort of junk drawer in your kitchen where you've got like a couple plastic forks and the menu from that other restaurant and like one pair of pliers and maybe a comb and some straws for some reason. It's where you go to collect like lots of little odds and ends that you might need, but 
if you really were to empty it out, you would see that all the parts are disparate. Think of a trunk novel that way. It's useful. It's still stuff you need, but it's not necessarily like a whole drawer of like the good silverware. It's going to be salvageable in part. And you're going to know that it's salvageable when you move on to another thing and realize like, oh, I wrote a scene. I, I need a scene in a post office. I just wrote a thing in a post office. Let's see if I can take that post office element and put it here, clean it up a little bit, see if that works, see if that makes my life a little easier so I don't have to rewrite everything from scratch. That's how you find the value in a trunk novel. Don't look at it and go, I wrote this whole thing. It's 90,000 words. How am I going to make this 90,000 words into a 90,000 word super book? That's an exercise in futility. Look instead at the idea that, you know, we're just trying to shape and craft pieces that we will use elsewhere. It's a great, nuanced, deep question. Thanks for asking it. Question 12. Oh, you're not going to like my answer for this. Question 12. I don't like social media, so how can I grow an audience without it? The hard way and generally not well. I, I, I truly... I'm sorry, I genuinely am, but like it or not, the world is driven in some degree now by social media. We don't have to like it. We can argue about the value of certain social media platforms. We can call everything a hell site if you want. We can say that some billionaires are ruining things faster than other billionaires are ruining other things. Sure, anytime. I'd be happy to. That sounds delightful. But at the same time, it is an inescapable part now. That doesn't mean everybody's got to be on TikTok. That doesn't mean everybody needs to be, you know, doing Instagrams. But there's always going to be some element of social media that you're going to need because that's where your audience is. And engaging with that, even if you're like, oh my God, I don't, whatever excuse you make, I understand. I hear you. But your resistance is directly proportionate to your lack of growth. The more you complain about how much you don't like, insert platform here, the greater problem you're having growing the audience in the places where you're at. Because chances are, I don't like Twitter. Okay, that's legit. But there's got to be some place somewhere that you can go to talk about something so that somebody can get interested in it. Social media is social. And audiences are extensions of of social groups. An audience is a social group. So you're going to have to be a little social. Otherwise, you are you can grow an audience without social media. It's just going to be what much smaller, probably in person and probably be a closed group. My mom is a member of several in-person groups for a variety of things. There's her church group, there's her like knitting group. There's the, the group she does to make blankets for chemo patients and uh, little blankets for babies and things. Like those are in-person groups. They organize via text message. And, and that's it. They, they're not on social media. They don't have a website. But that group is what, like I think eight or nine people? And they just do that. And, you know, maybe they bring somebody in by invite. Or somebody mentions like, hey, go talk to this person or that person, you know, get involved. But it doesn't grow in the same way like, oh, sign my, you know, leave me your email address and get on my newsletter. Like they don't, they don't do that. Your group is going to be automatically smaller because social media plays a fundamental role now in growing audience. And when we talk about audiences, people have these notions and conceptions that we're talking big numbers. 
more than 20, more than 50 people, hundreds of people, loads of people. We're only going to get there by using the tools of our enemies or not, using those tools to reach those people. Because they're all over the place. They're not just like, you know, everybody in my high school. It's, it's everywhere. So you can grow an audience, but it's going to be small and it's going to be slow. And chances are you're going to complain about it every step of the way. If you're really looking to grow an audience, find social media that you're at least tolerating and use it consistently. Great question. And lastly, question 13. Am I worried about AI in audiobooks? Yes. Yes, I am. AI is, I think, still like a huge tech bro nightmare hellscape. I think AI is definitely a thing that's going to get crammed in our faces because the people making decisions for a lot of different things will push AI in some way, whether that's productivity or appeal or novelty or something. But uh, the ability to synthesize a voice and get it in place, uh, at least coherent enough to read text in a way that is not formulaic and automatically robotic, that worries me because there is a true talent in being an audiobook reader. Uh, there is that level of humanization and empathy and, and emotion to the art of reading in the same way that it affects voice acting in the same way that it affects cartoons or film or something where, yeah, you can CG everything and you can AI and automate loads of different stuff, but you're never going to be able to replicate the human performance and you're never going to be able to really do, it might sound like that person, but it's not going to be that person. I'm very worried about it because um, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I, I like audiobooks. Uh, I have, you know, edited audiobooks. It's a delight and a pleasure. But I'm often worried, even when I don't like the reader of an audiobook, I'm, I don't want them to lose their job to a robot voice, even if it still vaguely sounds like them. I don't want like Scott Brick or Mark Thompson to, to lose their job to a machine that can, you know, read more books that sound just like them. I want them to read books. That's their thing. I like them. I worry about AI. I worry about AI in spaces encroaching human people. I worry about AI coming under the guise of automation and really coming as a way to like steamroll everybody out of the way. And some tech bro with a name like Carver or something telling us that this is really going to help us crush it or 10x or 30x or some number x our units of something, bro. I don't know. I'm really worried about it. I'm worried about this idea that we will strip the humanity out of art for the sake of money and the sake of capitalism. And I, I have to hope deeply and sincerely that we collectively, humans, collectively realize that the robot uprising won't necessarily look like Terminator and it will look more like people getting replaced by computerized services. This is not necessarily a case of everybody was really mad in theater when film came around and everybody in radio was really mad when TV came around. This is more a matter of um, 
we're not riding horses so much anymore because the car showed up. And now cars are everywhere. And now cars are everywhere and we're killing the planet. So we're not really engaging in audio medium so much anymore because AI is here. Following that train of thought, what dies next? I'm very worried about AI and audiobooks. I'm more worried about AI and audiobooks and with voice acting, like in video games and stuff, than I am with AI in like content writing because I think content writing is, I think it's mostly garbagey to begin with. I understand it's people's paychecks. I understand it's a job, but I understand it's also content farming is exploitative and destructive. I'm less worried about AI there because that, you know, there's something we can do about that. But to replace humans and synthesize, synthesize art, I swear I'll get that word out right, uh, to synthesize art, I think, is a true risk. So, yeah, I worry about AI and audiobooks. If you would like to debate that point with me at any time, feel free to jump over to patreon.com slash John helps you write better, and I will be happy to, like, write at length a, or talk at length uh, and, and write out like what exactly I'm sweating with this thing because it's a great discussion to have. Maybe that will show up over on the Substack, Writer's Secret Weapon. Who knows? I wonder. Hmm. You can go to substack.com slash John Helps You Write Better and um, check that out. Any other questions tonight, guys? Any other anything, people? I didn't mean to collectively overgender the audience. Does anybody have any questions? else we will get out of here all right then let us exit Thank everybody for being here. Thanks so much for coming out and chatting with me. Thanks for everything tonight. I look forward to uh, I look forward to this every chance I get and every week I get. Um, this one was a good one. Thanks for letting me talk about AI and art and sales and business and encouragement and everything in between. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so so very much. Um, yeah, this was a great one. Loved it so much. Now, heads up. Here's a wrinkle. Next week, no chat. Uh, we will probably be back here chatting. Let's plan at the end of the month. Let's plan for April the 26th. We'll chat then. Uh, no chat next week. Just got some stuff going on, a lot of planning to do, a lot of other stuff. And I won't be at the desk on a Wednesday. Uh, but, however, stay tuned to the audio feed. So, podcast. Uh, John Helps You Write Better wherever you get podcasts. Stay tuned. More stuff coming there. Go over to patreon.com slash John Helps You Write Better for more. And I will talk to you guys very, very soon. All power to all people. I love you. See you.